Let's stand together and uh, we are continuing our series called Suggestions for a Successful Summer. And that's a mouthful to say, fast. And uh, we are looking at the book of Hebrews and we're going to be looking at uh, this series over the summer. And uh, today our uh, focus is on Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 to 8. I'm reading yellow, you're reading white. This is what it says. Let brotherly love continue, or sisterly love. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who speak to you in the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Isn't that a great text? Isn't that a great text? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the living Christ. And because he lives we live also. And we live with the hope of resurrection, now and forever. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that enables us to enjoy all that you have made available and afforded in Jesus Christ. And he makes it applicable and available to our lives. So we ask now for the Holy Spirit's help, empowering, enabling, to speak, have a voice to speak, have a ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to understand, and particularly as we go out and live our daily lives from Monday to Saturday, that, Lord, that we would be visible, obvious followers of Jesus Christ for his name, for his kingdom's sake, and in his name we ask these mercies. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Well, it is summertime. School is out. The hot weather is here. And typically, we spend a whole lot more time outdoors in summer than we do at other times of the year, particularly winter. It's time when we kind of slow down and we relax. We take time to think. And we take time to enjoy the company of family and friends and neighbors. So we wanted this summer series, Successful Suggestions for a Successful Summer, to sort of be a practical thing for us this summer season. And so today's suggestion revolves around contentment. Now, the question is, is contentment really possible? Is contentment a realistic pursuit in our time 
and in our space. I think that the topic of contentment is probably more important to us and in our time than at any other time, I think, in history. The Bible's perspective on contentment is that not only is it possible to be content, but that contentment can bring real freedom in our lives. But before we get to that, let's back up and let's look at the context of our text. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were experiencing persecution. Now, that's very important. If we're going to understand this text, it's very important to understand that. That the people that first read this letter, we don't know really know who wrote it. Some people think it's Paul, but not likely. We really don't know. But the first recipients who read this letter, and it was written for them, were persecuted Christians. If we don't understand that, the text won't make sense to us. Not only were they persecuted, but they were scared. And so the phrases in the text gets 100% hotter when you think about that not only are they persecuted, but they are scared. They are afraid. Our text begins, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There's a story of a couple who went to Harvard University. And they wanted to see the president. And they wanted to see the president because they wanted to make a donation uh, to the university. And so the president agreed to see them. But he wasn't, um, he didn't know them. And because they were from a long ways away, they were sort of from out west. Uh, he sort of treated them curt and abrupt. So after a few minutes with the president, uh, the, the lady said to her husband, she said, Leland, let's leave. We can probably invest our money in a much better place and in better things. And so the man was Leland Stanford. He and his wife were the founders of Stanford University. Now, the point of our text is not that we should be nice to strangers because we don't know who it is we're really talking to, and who knows, they may give us something. That's not the point. Reminds me of this Texan who, um, a story of a Texan who came into a church in the, in the deep south, and he walked in, and the lady at the reception desk said, can I help you? And the Texan says in his Texas draw, I want to see the top hog. And the lady was a little offended, and she said, Sir, we do not appreciate anybody talking about our pastor in that way. And he said, Well, whatever, he said, but I want to donate $50,000 to this church. Receptionist said, Hold it a minute. I think I hear the little porker coming now. Seriously. (laughs) Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality strangers, for thereby 
some have entertained angels unawares, seems like an odd command. Why is it in this text? And here's why it's here. Because there were people during this time of persecution that were infiltrating the local church as informants for the government. And they were trying to figure out and identify who was in charge and what was going on. And to do so, and when they did so rather, they wanted to put them in prison. Now here's the catch. If you're a persecuted church, if we're a persecuted church, and we're persecuted Christians, it's probably unlikely that we are going to be hospitable to strangers. But the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And they may in fact be angels in disguise, but here's the point of the text. And here's the amazing thing about how the love of Christ and the power of grace works. The writer of Hebrews is saying, it doesn't matter whether they be messengers from God, angels in disguise, or whether they be informants to the government who wants to persecute you, you are supposed to, we are supposed to treat them with hospitality. And as a direct result of this, bad did come about. Some Christians had been thrown in jail. And so that's why verse 3 says, remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are suffering for their faith as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are the body. And then it makes a strange statement. The writer of Hebrews makes a statement about marriage. Matter of fact, one of the most familiar statements about marriage in the entire New Testament that's often taken out of context. He says, he says, let marriage be held in honor by all or among all and let married the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. What is a verse on marriage doing in a text about a persecuted church? And here's why. Many husbands and some wives had been in prison. And like us, they, the spouses, the partners that were left alone, they felt alone. And of course, because they felt alone, there was always the temptation to be unfaithful. It was ever-present. And we, you and I, and they, cannot be content. We cannot experience contentment and be relationally, emotionally, physically, or sexually unfaithful or impure. And then it says this, finally, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In other words, persecution is going to hurt you financially. Let me explain it this way. In the early church, 
we have the institution of water baptism. Now, in the early church, when the people got, when people came to Christ, there were no altar calls. Altar calls, by the way, are only about 175 years old. They started with John Wesley and Charles Finney. There was no such thing as people coming to the front to give their lives to Christ or make a decision for Christ. There was no raising of hands. There was none of that in the early church. The only way that you could profess your faith in the early church was by water baptism. Now remember this. Most of the people who got saved in the early church in the beginning were Jews. Now follow this. So there's a water baptismal service, and there's not in a church where there's a tank, but it's in the river, or it's in a pond, or it's in a lake, but it's in a public setting. And what you were saying by being baptized in water, because being water baptized was the quintessential statement about being a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you got water baptized and it was your public profession for any and everybody that wanted to come and see you water baptized. This is my profession of faith that I am a Christ follower. I have made a decision to follow Jesus. Now, on the banks of that river, or that pond, or that lake, were other Jews who were not Christians. And they were there to witness, to say to those who were getting baptized, if you decide to, to forsake Judaism and become a Christ follower, you need to know that we will never, ever do business with you again. No one will ever buy anything from you. You need to know, son or daughter, that if you decide to go through the waters of baptism and proclaim that you are a Christ follower, you will be dead to us as a family. Husband or wife, if you decide to go through the waters of baptism and become a Christ follower, you need to know that you will no longer be my wife or my husband, which was incredibly problematic in ancient times when it came to females. But that was the price of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ if you were moving out of Judaism into the Christian faith. Now, Make the conversion here to the persecuted church. Our context, or the context of our text, says something similar. It says, if you belong to that bunch of Christians, you will, you will be out of business. You will never find work. We will never, ever buy anything from you. You will not get promoted, and we will have absolutely nothing to do with you. You will be shunned, and you will be shut off. And in light of this, the writer of Hebrews comes back with this. In the midst of financial bankruptcy, financial chaos, in the midst of having nothing and the potential of being all alone, the writer of Hebrews says this, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
When everybody who does business with you has abandoned you, when your spouse has abandoned you, when your parents have abandoned you, when your friends have abandoned you, when your neighbors have abandoned you, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we find that these words were written to people who were scared that they were going to lose not only their livelihood, but in fact, their very lives. And what our text teaches us is that contentment is possible. It's not unrealistic to think that we can have real contentment. But contentment does not depend on external stuff, but on the declaration that God has said, I will never leave you or never forsake you. Now, you can, you can do the conversion in your own life. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that we are going through, it's not just for the Hebrews. It's for us in Sudbury at Glad Tidings, for the people watching online, for the people that are going to listen to this on the archive. God has said to us, God has said to you, God has said to me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. By the way, it's said, that very statement is said at least two other times in the Bible, if not three. It was first said to Joshua. But our text also raises another issue closely related to contentment. And that's the issue of comparisons. Verse 5 says, keep your love, keep your lives, uh, sorry, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, that is somewhat difficult for us, me and you, because we have come to believe that the next best thing is going to be helpful toward our happiness and contentment. We're conditioned by it, and advertisers bank on it. The Bible acknowledges that we have the power to keep our lives free from the love of money and that we have the ability to be content. Did you hear that? The Bible acknowledges that we have the power to keep our lives free from the love of money and that we have the ability to be content. But both are daily decisions about how we address them. Every day, we have to decide how we are going to address these. It was, um, I practice this guy's name. It was, uh, here he is, Epictetus, that's how it's pronounced. He says, commitment comes not so much from great wealth as from few wants. Did you know that a child is able to recognize commercial logos by the time that she or he is 18 months old? Did you know that? 
And one of the first ones that they recognize is the golden arches of McDonald's. Like, where did kids learn that to identify the golden arches? Have you ever noticed you never hardly have to teach a child to do a high five? They all know it. And they all know how to say this word. No. Now, not my grandchildren, but yours. You know what I'm talking about. John Ortberg says this, that when we buy our kids or grandkids a happy meal, we're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and the latest gadget or action movie figure. We're buying happiness. Advertisers are convinced, or rather have convinced, our children and our grandchildren that they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. And that their little hearts are restless till they find their rest in a happy meal. The problem, he says, with the happy meal is that the happiness wears off and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one happy meal. As if to say, remember that happy meal, what great joy I found there. Happy Meals, he says, brings happiness only to McDonald's. And he says, have you ever wondered why Ronald McDonald has that funny grin on his face? You would too if you sold 30 million Happy Meals. But he concludes with this. Ortberg says, when we get older, when we get older, we don't get any smarter. Our Happy Meals just get more expensive. So, I ask us this question. What's our Happy Meal? What's your Happy Meal? What's my Happy Meal? What am I, what are you discontented about? Where we live, maybe a bigger house, a better neighborhood, a better school, maybe a different vehicle, maybe a better paying job, maybe clothes, maybe electronics, etc. And you know, the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? But generally, our barometer of success in Sudbury, in North America, is money. In the culture code, cultural anth anthropologist whose name I cannot read argues that although everybody, including North Americans themselves, think our nation is obsessed with money, he says that's not quite right. What we're really interested in, he says, is not money for itself, but money that gives us proof. Money proves we've worked hard, that we're worth something, that we are appreciated. Money proves that we're moving up. When we don't have money then, we feel a tremendous sense of fear. 
We feel it's not just a commentary on our checkbooks, but on us. We associate our personal value and our self-worth with money. But we all know, don't we? We all know that money doesn't bring happiness. We all know that. And most likely, most of us, if not all of us, knows at least one person who has money or prestige or position or standing, and they're still not happy. But that doesn't stop us, does it? It does not stop us from being enthralled with the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Listen to what Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 says. And this is from the NIV, because it's a little clearer than the ESV. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So answer this question. Who am I comparing myself to? And if there is somebody that we are comparing ourselves to or we're measuring ourselves by, is that realistic? We all know that bigger is not better, right? Matter of fact, we often say that sometimes less is more. I have no idea what that means. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Proverbs 17.1 says, better a dry morsel with Quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 28, 6 says, Better a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And you know what I say to all of this? Really? Really? Do I really believe that? In our culture, in our time, in our setting, in our context, do I really believe what these verses are actually saying? Now, to be honest, because we're Christians and we honor the Bible, I think the answer to the question is yes. We do believe them because they're in the Bible. We believe them in our heads but we don't believe them in our hearts because our lives are lived differently. My life is lived differently. You see, it's all about values. Maria Sikora said our values, what we consider important, determine how we live our lives and how we treat others. And almost all conflicts are rooted in a clash of values. And then I don't know if it was him that said it, but it's attributed to him. Robert Louis Stevenson said, sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet 
of consequences. But there's something more. Our text gets to another core issue behind our discontentment, and it's fear. Fear. Verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here it is. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We struggle with discontentment because we're afraid. We're afraid that we will suffer because we won't have money or, or something that we will need or want, we won't get. Whether it be the necessities of life or the luxuries of life. But more significantly than the fear of not being able to provide, is the fear that we will amount to nothing. That we won't amount to anything because we live in the wrong house. We drive the wrong vehicle. We wear the wrong clothes. We don't hang around with the right people and people will look down on us and we fear that we will be alone. Alone. And fear, somebody said, is like a mushroom. It's a fungus that grows in the dark. Tasha Wall said that fear is an acronym for what is happening in our mind. False evidence appearing real. And Rabbi Samuel ben Nachmani said, we do not see things as they are. We, we see things as we are. And our text speaks to our fear. You already have more. I already have more. We already have more. And the more is this. We have God. Who will be with us no matter what. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. See, our confidence is in who God is and what he has said. And it comes down to this. Do I trust who God is? And do I believe what he says to be true? So what are we afraid of? What am I afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are we afraid of? Because whatever our fear, it is our pathway to discontentment. And here's the ironic part. Let's use finances as an example. When anxiety starts to build over our finances, we start to feel discontentment. And then we want to medicate our anxiety and our discontentment with money or with stuff that money can buy. 
Financial security is an illusion. Just like control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. And the truth is, so is job security. Now, I know that sometimes as Christians, we try and deal with our fear financially or otherwise by thinking, because I'm a Christian, God will keep anything too bad from happening to me if I'm good and I pray. Now, I used to believe that, but I've learned with time that it isn't true. I've learned that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to Christians. I know Christians who got laid off and have trouble finding another job. I know Christians who have lost their businesses. I know Christians who have had their homes repossessed. I know Christians who have gone bankrupt. Believing that we will avoid financial trouble simply because we're a Christian is nothing more than wishful thinking. Pretending that we will not face financial hardship or any other kind of hardship will not soothe our fear. What will soothe our fear is this, is that knowing no matter what happens, no matter what happens, God is with us and will help us. That no matter how deep our darkness, that God is deeper still. And we all feel anxiety at some time over something. And it's at that very moment in our anxiety that God is asking us this question. Do you really believe that I am enough? Do I really believe this? Do you really believe that in the midst of our anxiety over whatever it is that we feel anxiety over, in the midst, God says to us, do you believe that I am enough? Contentment is what we choose to find our confidence in. Even as our anxiety screams within us. And the secret, the secret to contentment, I believe, in our environment, in our culture, in our world, in our time, in our society, is making a daily choice to listen to what God has said. I will never leave you. And making a daily decision to believe that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And every day, I have to decide Every day you have to decide, every day we have to decide whether we are going to listen to God who promises to be our helper or listen to our screaming anxiety. In other words, contentment is a daily choice. And this is why the text 
ends the way that it does. First of all, remember your leaders. Those who have leaders, of course, is not just you know, formal leaders like pastors and all that. But remember those leaders, elders, who have exhibited what it means to trust God. But our text ends the way it does. Purposefully. Remember, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who was, who is, and who is to come. That God in Jesus Christ is unchanging. And God in Jesus Christ says to you, and he says to me, he says to us, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we all can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Nothing. Because we believe that God is sovereign, right? We believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if you believe that, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to get Pastor Scott to come. And we're going to sing that song that we ended with, or he's going to play that song that we ended our worship set with. If you have a need in your life, if you have anxiety over something, relationship, finances, health, whatever it is, provision, direction, and you believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you, then I want you to stand to your feet. If there is an anxiety in your life today, it doesn't matter what it is, an anxiety in your life today, something that I haven't even mentioned, and you believe, or you want to believe, in the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you, I want you to stand to your feet. All over the room, don't be shy. Just stand to your feet. If that's you today, if God is speaking to you today, then just stand to your feet. And I want you to close your eyes now. And I want you to repeat these words. And he has said, out loud, and he has said, come on, that's not loud enough. And he has said, I will never leave you I will never forsake you. Father, I'm just going to pray for you now. Father, in the name of Jesus, let those words ring in our souls. Let those words ring in the deepest part of our being. 
Lord, let those words drop in the deepest part of our human spirit, in the deepest part of our psyche. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. This is not some promise of man. This is the promise of God. Repeated at least two more times, maybe three, throughout the Bible. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Father, there are people standing in this room. There are people online today that are standing or are standing inside because they're unable to stand physically. Let your Holy Spirit, let your Holy Spirit attend unto our hearts and unto our minds and unto our souls and unto our lives so that we will be able to say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because you have us in the palm of your hand. Oh, Father, I pray today for every person standing in this room. Every person that the anxiety screams, the uncertainty, the worry. But you want them to hear. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you.